0: Welcome back to another episode of The Chase Report. My name's Xander, and today Dom and I are joined by Luke Mazzaferro, one of the co-directors of the brand new film, A Fire Inside. It explores the 2020-2019 bushfires through the eyes of the people on the ground. And it's a powerful film that talks about the importance of mental health, the impacts of climate change, and how we can be there for communities and how communities can be there for each other in the wake of of disasters. We talk to Luke after the break.
1: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. apocalyptic images coming out of Australia right now everything that you can possibly think of around you is on fire
2: an area bigger than England has been reduced to ash
1: how do you convince thousands of everyday Australians to go and stand in front of something that could potentially take their life 2019 was Australia's hottest ever year
2: We had over 200 consecutive days of bushfire emergency. I'll never get those images out of my head.
1: That was not a normal bushfire. That was something dragged up out of hell and dumped on earth. We kept trying to get the car out and it just wouldn't move. We both just looked at each other and went, this is where it ends for us. The emergency didn't stop the day the rains came. A different sort of emergency took over.
0: Luke, thank you so much for joining us. You're one of the co-directors of the brand new film "A Fire Inside." It's just stunning. What's it been like to finally have the film out there?
1: Yeah, it's been uh, it's been great. Actually, it's been great to finally share these stories with um, with the public. And uh, you know, we we ended up shooting a lot of the film during the initial lockdown last year, and then finishing film during this latest lockdown so um we kind of were sitting on it for about two months just in isolation without anyone having seen it yet so it's nice to get it out there and um i guess uh, shine a light again on some of these stories and people who you know for a bunch feel like you know it's uh, been um a little forgotten with everything else that's been going on in the world
2: <laughs> there has been an awful lot but um it was an incredibly traumatic summer um there's no other fire event that I can, or no other fire uh, that's been given the black designation where there's been a whole season, black summer, but it was more than the summer. It went for about five months all up, I think. How do you manage to shape the enormity of that season and all of the different events that happened into one narrative? How did you approach that?
1: Yeah, so in the early discussions with um, with Justin, um, it was always to... F- the thing that interested us was this question of why do these people do what they do? Because what we saw from this season, as you said, it wasn't just like a, 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 a it was like a whole season. And, and as Shane Simmons says, he refuses to call it black summer because it went through winter, um, autumn and summer. And, um, but this, we were like, who are these people that in this case left their day jobs and their families and their towns and stuff for like months um, at a time? um so it was focusing on the humanity behind the fires so rather than trying to paint a picture of the entire season and tell this chronological story of the fires themselves we wanted to focus on um this question of why do these people do what they do and what we quickly learned what was even more interesting was why do they continue to do what they do what they do after it costs them so much and not uh, you know the financial aspect is one thing but the emotional psychological toll is quite astounding
0: it is a really profound film and it's quite impactful the whole way through it and you explore all these different um, volunteer firefighters and their relationships with their communities how did you work out where you're going where you're going to go for this film
1: Um Again, the sort of the blueprint we worked out early on and actually ended up staying like that for the most part, apart from, you know, the inevitable changes because you rewrite these things so, so many times with documentaries once you're shooting and then in the edit, but was let's set up the fires themselves, contextualise the enormity and the unprecedented level of what um, these folks went through, and then for the most part, Acts 2 and 3 deal with the aftermath, and towards the end deal with actually moving forward and what's life going to be like when the next fire season comes around or the inevitable next, you know, uh, black summer or the next one that is of this scale again, because the science is pointing towards it becoming more frequent, Um, and we touch upon that in the film. Um, Yeah, so that, in our initial research, we kind of, firmed up on that idea because everyone we spoke to that emotional toll was so um apparent we just couldn't shy away from it so we ended up leaning into it and again i mean you've seen the film we kind of tried to make clear that yes it is an emotional film it can be intense but ultimately it is we hope a hopeful film um and, and an inspirational film because the resilience that these people do show is quite amazing. And there's this really cool line that John Brogdon came out with as we were interviewing him him, that's in the film, which is that classic she'll be right attitude that we've grown up with in Australia. Um, He learned from this, this past season is that Australians aren't as strong as they thought they were, but we are more resilient than we thought we were.
2: It is quite an extraordinary thing when you think about it. Just the Gospers Mountain Fire, the biggest fire of, um, the, of the 2019, uh, 2020 summer. I think was something like eight times the size of Singapore. Completely extraordinary. Br- burnt for more than 100 days. And then humans going up against this, trying to stop this incredible wall, wall of flames that's kilometres long, and then doing it day after day after day for no pay it's really inspiring isn't it and uh, what sense did you get of what motivates these rfs volunteers who just spend their lives standing by to do this whenever it's needed at the drop of a hat
1: yeah it's um it's one of those curious things where the answer itself can be quite unremarkable um like you ask a lot of these um Folks, and, and we would ask them. One of the first things we'd ask them, and a lot of times the answer might just be like, "Ask oh, what you do." <laughs> just that classic, just like a couple of word Aussie response, just like that's what you do, or like, "Oh well, who else is going to? If I don't do it, who else is going to do it?" Um, but the answer became much more uh, complex and varied once we started walking a mile in these people's shoes. You know, some start out like you take Nathan Bonden, for instance, and. He started out because his dad did it. And he, as a teenager, was like, that's pretty cool. My dad goes and fights fires and jumps in fire trucks and it seems like a fun thing to do. But now with everything that he's gone through in his life, he does it because he knows he literally can save a human life and give someone the opportunity to continue living and breathing and, and experiencing life who wouldn't have had that chance if he hadn't have done the training that he did for all those years and at that very specific moment answered that call, rushed out, went into that burning house and, and pulled these people out. So, um, yeah, it's it's one of those things that is, was profound once you spent the time with them because if you just ask the kind of question straight up, Um, I think humans are more complex and it's, it's interesting to sort of see it play out and then get under their skin with it.
0: In, in that scene, he's describing how, you know, they didn't have any trucks left. So he got the call that there's people stuck inside a house. So he had to get in his four wheel drive and they just had to drive to the fire. It's quite intense and it's visceral and, beautiful is not the right word but it's so visually striking how much of that was you kind of combining footage from what you could get from the bushfires versus recreation in order to aid the visual telling of his story
1: yeah so that that particular um sequence uh the retelling of of that the rescue of that family um was something that we constructed through um uh i guess re- recreation um we actually went out to a um a uh, cane farm and filmed a, a burn out there, which allowed us to um, reconstruct those specific moments because of course there was no, like, you know, they don't wear body cams or anything like that. So we, we actually had nothing to work with just the master interviews that we had. Um, yeah. So I guess that's, I know what you say, it's it sort of feels inappropriate to say beautiful, but it's, it was because we had filmed that in a certain way, Um, that it feels a little more cinematic than just the the iPhone footage or the smartphone footage, like archival stuff that's in a lot of the film. Um, Yeah, so we had to construct that one ourselves.
2: Yeah, it must have been quite challenging working out how to pull the footage together because these are fires that were so huge and so dangerous that most news organisations didn't let their people anywhere near it. And... I guess, just the the dwarfing scale of these fires compared to humans. Um, but also, as, as someone who was involved in covering them uh, on on radio, I was actually in the room helping people, getting the RFS info and pulling it together and saying, well, there's a fire coming towards here, you've got to get out now. And having to tell people shelter in place, it's too late to leave and all these kinds of things. I guess my imagination was was trying to conjure up these images. There is something very primal, isn't there, about fire. It somehow gets to us as humans at a very, very deep level. It's probably one of our biggest fears going back millennia.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's... um, We... As far as the archive goes, that just, you know, it was hundreds of hours of just scouring everything from social media to news websites and calling up different people who had libraries of stuff and even reaching out in the film world to, you know, cameramen and cinematographers we knew who may have been out there at the time and just trying to pull everything from anywhere. Um, And then where we could, we filmed some uh, sort of thematic, you know, heightened um, visuals ourselves, such as that rescue scene, to really kind of contextualise and, like, provide that, you know, overt, visceral, almost kind of nightmarish dream sequence of, of that memory. Um But, yeah, I guess it's... We always try to balance as well it not becoming sensationalist. Um, we sort of... Uh, even with our previous film, which is about AI, we really hold ourselves to a stand of not wanting to overblow things just to get a re- an easy reaction. Um, so yeah, it was months and months of editing to try and find that balance of like servicing and honoring the extremity of it, but also not kind of going for like a cheap, um, reaction just because it was easy to do. How Cause these you- were real people and real stories mm-hmm. and people who had entrusted us with their very sensitive, you know, um, memories of, of what they went through.
0: How did the film come about? Was it during the fires you decided to make it or at what point did you go, all right, I want to distill something from this event?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, Justin and I were actually promoting um, our previous film um, called Machine and we were travelling around the country at the time doing like the press tour for that. So we were flying to like Queensland, Victoria, Canberra, you know, WA and and every flight would get on, we'd be looking out the window and like, what the hell is going on? It was just like chaos down below. And then at times, the smell of smoke started coming into the cabin, and the pilots having to come over the PA and be like, oh, no one panic. That's just from the bushfires. There's nothing wrong with the plane. Um, and then my, uh, my, close family friends actually lost their property that got completely destroyed. And then my in-laws had to evacuate their property and luckily that was okay. But the real kind of seed of sparking uh, an interest in doing a project on it came when, um, an RFS member, a long time RFS member, Andrew Flakler, who is an old filmmaking friend of uh, our producer, Michael's, um, invited us to a talk he was doing and he was recounting his experiences on the front line. So we went along and I'd met him once or twice before, but it was like 1000 yards stare, like listening to the talk of someone who just came back from D Day. And it was just like, holy shit, this is a dude, you know, he's just like, he's a filmmaker. He's like me, but he obviously has been doing this for like 20 years as an RFS member. And this is what it was like for him day in and day out. And we Started thinking like that element felt like it may have been lost a little bit, like those actual sort of um, raw accounts and experiences of people on the front line and like sort of looking past the chaos of all the politics and all the kind of, you know, the idiotic misinformation that was going out there and whatever, and just like, who are these people that walk amongst us? who are these community volunteers that give back and actually make such a difference to these communities. Cause that's where the resilience comes from in these communities. It's just like these average Joes who just like put their hand up and, and give back. And it doesn't even have to be RFS members. It's, um, you know, people at the community pantry or, you know, people who are helping clean land or rebuild fences or whatever.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. In amidst all the trauma of, of these events and people losing their homes and in some cases lives, it, it,
1: Well, sometimes people who survive, the survivor's Mm. guilt is really intense and sometimes can be more intense for folks who have survived than, you know, their neighbor who lost their own house. And it's like the neighbor who lost their house is comforting the neighbor whose house survived because they just can't process that. Why and me? Why was I spared?
2: Yeah. I was just going to say there's an amazing sense of community that emerges from these experiences and it is like survivors of war. It's a good analogy. And, um, you know, I know people who um, had neighbours who'd lost their houses, but who stayed up the entire night, you know, protecting their house and they weren't able to make it down there and all that. And there is a beauty, isn't there, in in the bonds that let communities come together uh, to battle these fires. It almost goes back to, I guess, all the disaster movies that we've seen about these awful threats, Even going back to Beowulf, there is a monster, it's at your door, you fight it and then all going well, it goes away and you count your losses.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's interesting you say that. We often would be sitting in the edit, um, Justin and myself and now editor Scott, Scotty Wormsley, and um, and we would bring up that analogy of like this is like the first part of film is like a, um, a disaster monster film. It's mm. like Godzilla's coming and sort of setting up that, you know, you've got the scientist at the start who's like, it's coming, everyone, beware! This is all yeah. sort
2: of coming. It's like the Jeff had Goldblum.
1: We exactly. have <laughs> yeah. it's like we do. We've got our. Climate <laughs> we to We've got our climate scientists in the film. Who's sort of like the conditions are ripe. This is we're screwed, and then it unfolds, and then the rest is it's kind of like a war film, and so you're seeing these survivors of this this war. Um, yeah. So it's uh, sorry, I forget what the question was, but yeah, that's there the were conversations we were having because it was just such. Um, a parallel there of, of these people who had lived. And one of our people, Paula Zaha even says, it. it's like the images we were seeing come out of this look like they were from world war two, you know, the burnt out melted um, engine blocks of cars in these towns that just were decimated. Um, it's not something that we attribute with, with modern Australia.
0: I think one of the most striking parts of this film is not the images of the flames, but the amount of people you're able to interview from completely different walks of life there's that family that had moved to the to the bush town twenty years ago and had slept in a tent for a year. People who had escaped from domestic violence and started up their own charities to support the community and continues to support it to this day or people even sup- like providing trauma and psychological relief. How did you find all these people and was it important to you that you showed off just the range of people living in rural australia
1: yeah, um, so the first part, it was a mixed bag with how we found them. Um, some we found from existing media coverage, um, like, say, Nathan and, and, and Brendan O'Connor. Um, and then from those, they would tell us, like, oh, you should really speak to this person. And then that would lead on to another conversation, another conversation, another conversation. Um, others we found just from, again, scouring social media and being like, oh, this town seems interesting and finding this person. And then others in that beautiful thing that can happen when making docks is just while we were driving around location scouting and just sort of trying to get a feel of what the the vibe was on the ground. And um, like, so Paula Zaha from the community pantry, we just were driving through Bargo and uh, stopped and we're just looking around and went to get back in the car. And now uh, the corner of my eye, I saw like a sign it's a nondescript building, but I don't know, for some reason I just walked across the road and went in and said, said, well, what are you doing here? We're making a docker on the, fires. And then she just started talking about her experience and like telling us about, you know, history with the domestic violence. Then she's like, Oh, by the way, I've got lasagna coming out of the oven that they were making for their um, campers. Like, do you want to sit down and have lunch? So Michael and I were like, no, no, we're busy, but um, we've got to run, but we got her details and then did a follow-up call and then kept sort of, you know, she introduced us to other people. And, you know, from there she had her own footage and stuff um, like Barbara from Narragunda, who's that amazing um, elderly woman who becomes everyone's favourite by the end of the film. She's a machine. That yeah, <laughs> that totally was by chance. We were just filming a Mindaroo pod delivery because we wanted to see what that looked like and what it was all about. And then out walks Barbara. Totally, like we had no idea. We were, we just had been put in touch of like, oh, there's a pod delivery happening here, and she walks out and just starts. Um, you know, starts being Barbara and it's just like, point the camera on her, <laughs> holy shit. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then we went back and filmed with her again a few months later and sort of tracked her journey.
0: Because the pods are these temporary living solutions for people in bush. Yeah, America.
1: yeah, so Mindaroo Foundation um, uh, have, they quickly set up this fire fund and, and out of that came, I guess, their experience with Twiggy Forest's um, the mining background um, the the versatility of um, mining accommodation so they they got basically like they shipping containers converted them to temporary accommodation that have like fridges and, and ovens and stoves and, and gas heating and whatever um, and they delivered them out anyone who had lost a home who got nominated. I'm not quite sure exactly how the nomination process went, but they would be given these pods for up to two years. And then the idea is that once they've rebuilt, they can, the pods can be cleaned and repurposed and basically standing by for the next inevitable disaster, which is like, it's a pretty cool thing because something like this will happen again, whether it's flood or fire. And now there is this slap, um, there's a whole bunch of these poles that are just like standing there ready to go. Whereas there was a little delay with these fires because they had to quickly fabricate them once they got the idea to do them. So it's, it's, you know, it's a worthwhile thing that they're doing.
2: The disasters aren't um, slowing down in in their pace, are they? I remember being on radio um, a a year after the fire season started and talking to a lot of people who still didn't have their homes, still hadn't been able to move back and, just the whole traumatic decision of do you rebuild or do you give up? Do you abandon this dream of living right near the bush? Uh, it's kind of a question for policymakers as well. How did you tell the story of recovery and, and finding resilience? Because there are so many pockets of anger still there today, people who feel forgotten. And then in amongst, in amongst that, there's an amazing story of, of uh, mental health and um, I guess learning more about how humans process these things. How did you put that part of the film together?
1: Yeah, um, again, varied. Like each, you know, Barbara, the two the two people we covered who had lost their homes, Barbara and, and um, the Cam family, had very different experiences. And, you know, Barbara has since rebuilt a house, I believe, and is, is now living in that, whereas the Cams have only just um, got an approval to rebuild and won't, I think, start rebuilding until next year. So you're now talking like two-plus years from when... Mm been living in a Minderu pod in a tent off to the side of that. And um, so it was just hearing them out. I don't know, you know, but hearing them out and, and letting them vent that anger, letting them um, express their gratitude for the community members that had helped them, not shying away from the realities that, yeah, unfortunately, there were some experiences where there were looters who were coming to their destroyed properties and taking stuff. Mm-hmm. But as they would remind us, for every one of those experiences, there'd be like twelve where <clears throat> there'd be twelve where um, community members were coming around and bringing cooked meals, or letting them come and you know crash in their living room for a night, or um, helping them clear land and stuff like that. So I think we wanted to just be true to humanity can be messy and humans like there's a lot of shades of gray to it all but ultimately there is the good good news story of we actually in these times of crisis the best of us does come out and thankfully what we found was the overwhelming majority of stories were in that positive of that positive nature um it's not to shy away from the darkness because it's important to acknowledge that and kind of scratch at why we do that but overwhelmingly we are good and I think you know we would talk about it because again we were making it during COVID and then during the U.S. election last year and Justin isn't an American so we're like sitting there all day in, in this subject matter and then seeing what was happening in the states and we're just like man this this film actually deserves to be a reminder for people that there is hope and there is um, positivity in humanity when we all just respond. And unfortunately, that only seems to happen in in force during times of crisis. People just, you know, suddenly that neighbour who you had the shits with, you'll just kick the door down and try and save them because it's just like life is on the line. So, you know, we hope the takeaway is that, that can just be a little bit more of a reminder of like, you know, it is important to just acknowledge everyone, you know, even if it's that person who cuts in lane in front of you as you're driving home or whatever, just like they may be a dick, or they may just have had a hellish day and they're just like put in, not thinking of your needs. So if you just sort of take a breath to be like, Hey, just give them a pass. They might be going through something. And just, you know, those little moments can actually sort of, you know, amount to, um,
2: What are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
0: There's this eye-opening moment in the film where you talk to a backpacker who was stuck in a street mm. during the bushfires and has been helping with the recovery since then. What was it like to get that perspective?
1: Emily, um, who was like a manager of BlazeAid. So BlazeAid is a charity that um, is based all around regional uh, I believe or definitely New South Wales Um, and she was based in Cobargo so they they help um, farmers rebuild fencing and when you consider these fires where kilometers of a single farmer's farm uh, was destroyed that's a lot of fencing that needs to be redone Um, and they also perform welfare checks and stuff so we were just filming with Blaze Aid and she was our chaperone but she just kept sharing her story just anecdotally and we were like we should be covering Emily. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's how she became a a key uh, voice in the film. But he was this person who had never been to Australia, um, had no interest in in helping, like, well, being sort of volunteering, hadn't really considered that before. But through the generosity that she experienced in her time of dire need, totally had this um, life-changing perspective shift of, like, I just need to give back. And it was her way of healing and kind of um, moving through the trauma that she experienced, which was a really unique thing. Um, and that's kind of another takeaway that we've found like making the film and that we hope um, is sort of conveyed in the film is like giving back can be a way of healing and a way of sort of um, moving beyond your narrative of either being a victim or being um, someone who is suffering from trauma. Cause it, once you're giving back, it's sort of can create these new pathways in the brain and sort of, you know, endorphins and stuff. And and you sort of start changing your perspective of you're not the only person who's gone through something. Um, And so like someone like Emily is still down there right now, rebuilding fences and doing stuff like that. And there's, um, there's, I think now I'm not going to leave Australia. So this is someone who like came out for a holiday just as an English backpacker, just for a laugh, as she says, um, who's now had her whole like, life trajectory changed for the better by, by this incident, by this um, disaster.
2: You mentioned that um, at the start of the film, as per disaster movie uh, format, you have warnings from scientists that weren't heeded. I remember during the whole the summer we heard from uh, the former head of the Royal Fire Service um, talking about how he'd tried to warn policymakers and they hadn't reacted. And uh, this story that you're telling is another warning to policymakers and to all of us that this will keep happening and and get worse as time goes on. Uh, But the story of Black Summer has been forgotten somewhat, what with COVID, um, of course. How have you gone with getting this film in front of policymakers? And and do you hope that it will have, uh, do you hope that it will be able to remind people of what we need to remember, given the future threat of, of more summers like these or even worse?
1: Yeah. Um, So we know that there's been a lot of talk about um, like the climate change angle and and that sort of thing, but we hope, and, and our film touches on that for sure, but we hope, again, from a policymaker point of view, that when you see the humanity behind it all and the real everyday impacts of the people who are like actually in the trenches in these communities who are affected by it. And not just seeing them for a moment in standing in front of their destroyed house, but going, okay, now this is them three months later. This is them six months later. This is them 12 months later. And this is the actual impact that these disasters have on individuals and communities. We hope we'll um, provide some uh, deeper context and, and, you know, I think if you can't feel moved or empathy for these stories, then um, we've got bigger problems. Um, but you know, we'll be having a big TV release um, in December, so oh, great. I, I hope that no one, as far as policymakers, will be able to kind of hide from it <laughs>
2: once 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 it's out there. Because you probably don't want to make a sequel, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: No, and, uh, you know, that's sort of the sad thing is, um, you know, the, we there's only so many voices in the film and we tried to keep it concise so it didn't, we tried to keep it um, concise but uh, so you really had time to spend with these people and not to sort of become, a, you know, a cacophony of stuff that just becomes a bit of a wash. Um, but it is emblematic and I think if it does happen again, you could probably just watch the same film and be like those, these new communities who have gone through it are going through the exact same thing. Um, so it's, yeah, it's definitely, a um, we hope a beacon for people to not only actually listen about what's going on in the climate or with global warming, but also to build resilience in preparation of these events. So we're not left flat footed when the next one comes along to be like, okay, what could I do now? to give back to my community. Um, because the more prepared we are, uh, the more resilience we're gonna have. And and that's, you know, you know, there was a lot of lives lost, which was tragic. But it is just it is quite amazing that there weren't more lost. And I think that is testament to some of the preparation that had um been put in place. But there needs to be much more, much more
0: the end of the film does pitch that with the Australian resilience corps. for people yeah. who haven't heard of that before. Could you? Brand new. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, again, that's something that Mindaroo have literally just launched officially this week. And, um, they had heard about the film while we were in production and we showed them a cut of it and, um, they were blown away and sort of wanted to see how they could be involved and, and they, pitched us this thing that they were working on, which is the Australian Resilience Corps, which is um, has the ambition to build the largest network of community volunteers uh, in, in the country. And so basically it's uh, pitching that no matter who you are, uh, no matter what your skill set is, you can be useful to your community it's not just the firefighters it's not even just people who work in community pantries and food banks or whatever it's like everyone can give back in some way so they're they're a portal for you to go give you details and then they'll put you in touch with um, relevant community organizations in your community or elsewhere in Australia if you want to put your hand up to to travel around and, and give back so um, it's all about preparing uh, for the inevitable next disaster, so when it does hit, we actually have this huge group of people all around the country that are already mobilized and sort of already been doing, um, have some experience in in community organizations because there was some really cool examples that came out of Black Summer where um, they call it spontaneous venturing, where sort of the, the example that got the most coverage in media was in Kabago, where just community members, not affiliated with any charities, just suddenly mobilised and created um, uh, like a shelter and, and, a, and a donations hub. And it operates really well for a couple of weeks. But at the end of the day, it's not an official organisation. There's no kind of like, you know, infrastructure there. It's um, But it was really successful and it happened uh, in multiple locations. So this is the Volunteer Corps, I guess, will um, has the ambition for not relying on that, not just relying on just people just having to come together in the heat of the moment when they're already at a, dealing with heightened emotions and, and other factors going on, but um, there's people who are just standing by. And, um, yeah, so it's building resilience basically and that's just what's going to help us get through because it is going to happen again.
2: As a, a broadcaster, I've visited a bunch of places where bushfires have been through six months later or something like that. And the reason that that happens while well, people go there is because there's enormous value to those communities in telling these stories. It's so easy to feel forgotten when the media uh, crews roll out and, you know, no one's there anymore and it feels as though they've been abandoned. And it seems as though uh, what you've done, uh, Luke, with Justin in terms of pulling this together and putting it in front of the Australian community, putting it on TV, you've ensured that these people's stories won't be forgotten and that um, we'll actually try and learn from this. Because if you've been through an experience like this, your dearest wish is that no one else goes through it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and, and um, the people that we um, spend time with basically said the same thing. It's one of those... Uh, things you know where people are like oh it will never happen to us it never happen to me um but it did and and that's we hope that the the varied group of people we have um featured is um an example of it doesn't actually matter who you are like the fire doesn't discriminate it's if it's going to rip through it's going to rip through and even if you're prepared with the best you know fire graded glass windows and everything. It's, you know, when it's as ferocious as the conditions were in this season, it it just is decimating everything in its path. Um, so yeah, we, we, we hope that, uh, people, um, that, uh, yeah, people are reminded of the good that can come out of communities and individual actions and, um, and that it is also a warning that we, we need to look after each other, and especially on the mental health aspect. I think a big thing that has come out of this, and from firefighters we know who have seen this, um, as we were testing the film in the stages of editing, um, we had firefighters who said, shit, okay, seeing like Brendan O'Connor or Clem Barnon or a young firefighter like Nathan put their hand up and say, I'm not okay, I need help, made them realize that they also had things going on in their life that they weren't addressing and it gave them the courage to go out and seek help. So that's really cool to hear. And we've since been hearing that, that um, knowing that it's okay to not be okay and having that feeling like you've got that permission um, to reach out for help, we, hope uh, that the film is also a conversation starter and sort of continues this plays a small part in, in, in continuing that conversation.
0: Thanks so much Luke for coming on the show A Fire Inside is an incredible film that people can catch with the Sydney Film Festival on demand and it is still in cinemas around the country and I advise that everyone checks it out because it, it's an incredible watch and I think it's deeply important at this point in history. Thanks mate appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to another afternoon edition of The Chaser Report. It's been incredible to have Luke on. And just a reminder, if you want to check out his film, it's a fire inside and it's on Sydney Film Festival on demand. And it's also in cinemas around the country. Check that out now. Our gear is provided by Rode Microphones and we're part of the ACAST Creator Network.